There's a story of a Chinese farmer uh, after having cataracts removed from his eyes uh, made his way to the far interior of China and only a few days had elapsed when a Christian doctor had looked out through his bamboo window and noticed this uh, formerly blind farmer had a rope and holding onto the rope were several blind people. And he realized what was taking place is that these blind people were following this formerly blind farmer to the doctor because they too wanted to be healed. They had heard how this man was blind, had his eyes healed. They wanted to go to the same doctor. Now, uh, this man, the formerly blind Chinese farmer, didn't know the physiology about eyes. He didn't know about all the technical things related to his surgery. All he knew is that once he was blind and now he can see and these other people were wanting to be witnesses of the same thing. And it reminds me a lot of our Christian lives. Few of us are really trained theologians. Uh, most of us don't understand the nuanced arguments in, in theology, nor do I think we have to. We are certainly don't have a, uh, a claim to have the Christian life perfectly down. Uh, we are flawed people. We understand that. But we are witnesses of what Christ has done in our lives. All of us can tell our story of how God intervened, how God moved in us. We're all witnesses of that. And that's what God calls us to do. And that is what the book of Acts is about. The book of Acts is like sitting down with some people and listening to their stories of how God worked in and through them in those beginning years of the church. And so for the next, who knows how long, we are going to go through. I just hope that I don't die before we're done with the book of Acts. Okay, we'll make it. Uh, we're going to go through verse by verse, and uh, I'm sure it'll be in years and not months, but uh, I feel like it's a great time for us as Christ's community to learn the truths about this glorious book and uh, to see how God was moving in and through his people in these days. Luke was the same man who wrote the Gospel of Luke, of course it bears his name, he also wrote the book of Acts, which is an honest portrayal of the, 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 the tensions, the persecutions, the issues, the frustrations, the, the theological problems and hopes confronting the new bride of Christ. In Acts, we see this glorious ascension of Jesus to heaven in the very first chapter. And right after that, we see a not-so-glorious group of people dealing with Judas. And now that Judas has hung himself and, and betrayed the Lord and betrayed the disciples, how are they going to replace him? So you go from the, the ascension to Judas. <laughs> and isn't that like real life? Isn't that like ministry, like church? You'll have a glorious victory and then a problem right around the corner. That's life. And Luke when he writes Acts, he never avoids reality. He just tells it exactly like it happened. And so he's a, he's a personal witness to some of these events because he talks about 
uh, throughout the book, he'll talk about we, meaning he was there and witnessed it, or he would have interviewed Paul, who he spent a lot of time with, uh, or he'd interviewed James, too. So these are eyewitness accounts to what had taken place in the early church. Now, Acts marks the transition from the work of God among the Jews to the establishment of the church worldwide. In doing so, Acts demonstrates the universality of Christianity. Now, a lot of people want to criticize Christianity as being a Western white man's religion. In fact, in the recent, um, what was it, uh, on the History Channel, was it, that they showed a new thing for Roots, a new series of Roots. I watched the first couple episodes, and, and they talked about Christianity. There was a comment about Christianity being a white man's religion. That's when I turned it off. Why? Because I'm so sensitive and I don't like to be offended like that. So I didn't watch any more of it. Uh, in, in a very real sense, this is a story, Acts is, of going from Jerusalem to the uttermost part of the earth by the time you get to Acts 28. So the road from Jerusalem to Rome, it's a long road, it's an arduous road, but it is indeed a glorious road. The gospel goes to the Samaritans, the Ethiopian eunuch, Cornelius, the Gentiles at Antioch, rich and poor, young and old, men, women. We read of the conversion of Paul, the missionary journeys of Paul. We read of the doctrinal conflicts between the Jews and the Gentiles at the Jerusalem Council and many more other important episodes that took place in the early church. The central character of the book is Christ himself working through the apostles to continue his work. Now, Luke never mentions some important events, such as the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in 70 A.D. Uh, He never mentions the death of Paul that most historians believe died in the late 60s A.D. Uh, He never mentions the the upstart of the Neronian uh, Nero's persecution of the church in 64 A.D. So because he never mentions these important events, and this is a historical book of the church, we surmise that the book was probably written before those things took place, so probably from 60 to 62 A.D. So let's get started with the book of Acts. Let's all stand. We're going to read through the whole book this morning, and then... (laughs) Just the first five verses. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until that day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. Now, we don't know a whole lot about Theophilus. We know that he's mentioned in the book of Luke, where Luke refers to him as most excellent one. Uh, Sometimes that refers to a person who maybe holds a high position in office. It could be. We're not told that. Some think that Theophilus actually financed the writings of of Luke and Acts and and their dissemination. 
We don't know that either. It's just conjecture. What we do know that he was probably an ally to the gospel, with the gospel, along with Luke. Now, in the first couple verses, Luke is reaching back into his gospel account and drawing a line directly to the book of Acts. He says he has accounted for what Jesus began to do and teach. That's the gospels. That phrase, what Jesus began to do, isn't that an interesting way to say it? That's as if saying, yeah, Jesus began it in the gospels, but you know what? He's not finished. He's still got work to do. He still wants to work in and through you now. It's not a dead Jesus. It's one who is alive and is still working. We're going to talk about the work that he began to do then, but he's going to continue to do here in the book of Acts. So we must welcome Jesus to continue to do his work in and through us. And I think we do ourselves a disservice if we see the book of Acts, and I know some who maybe grew up in certain theological constructs, see it as almost like a blip on the screen, not something that that we ought to necessarily emulate. And I think that would be a mistake, that we ought to expect God's supernatural activity and his power being manifested among us. Now, I'm not one to dictate how God needs to do that other than through transform lives and other ways that he wants to do it externally. We'll just let him be God and do what he wants to do. But I think we can expect his supernatural activity. Until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he has chosen. Luke adds that the recorded events up to the ascension of Christ or when he was taken up. And he bridges the gospel of Luke with these events in the book of Acts by referring to the commands of Christ. In other words, there were commands that Christ gave in between that time. And he said he gave them to the apostles. Now, the apostles are ones that were, that were sent out as, as special emissaries for Christ. But what are the commands? Well, let's look at Luke 24, 44 through 49. It says this. Then he said to them, these are my words that I have spoken to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. So the two commands were for them to wait in Jerusalem, and we know they were waiting for the Holy Spirit, and then they were to be witnesses to all the nations. Wait and witness. Now, the Gospels are a record of Jesus completing his earthly ministry. Acts is a record of Jesus using the apostles to extend that ministry. And the apostles cannot extend the ministry of Jesus without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is promised in the book of Luke, and he arrives in the book of Acts. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
Again, verse 3 is about the time between the resurrection and the ascension. And Luke notes that it was about 40 days. Now, 40 days is often repeated in Scripture. Uh, The Jews would certainly recognize that time. That was the amount of time that that Moses was on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God. It was the amount of time that Elijah sojourned to Mount Horeb after the tremendous ministry exploits on Mount Carmel. And by the way, he was in a a depressive state there that God basically had to slap him and say, you know, get out of there and get on with the job. Uh, It's the same amount of time that Jesus was in temptation in the wilderness. So perhaps the reason that it's 40 days is as simple as God wants us to remember the event. He wants us to remember the significance of these events with a similarity of days. During this time, it says, our passage says, that God provided many proofs to Christ's followers that he indeed was physically alive after dying and being buried for three days, he then resurrected. Wow. Proofs. In other words, faith of the apostles was built on empirical evidence. Why? Because they could see him. They could hear him. They even ate with him. Faith is not saying I'm going to believe when I have no evidence. When I ask the students, I often teach on campus here in Springfield about what do you think faith is. They will often say, it's believing what I know is not true. I'd say 85% say, it's believing what I know is not true. And I just want to go, really? That's what you think it is, all right? Listen, the gospel is a marriage between faith and facts. Biblical faith is not asking us to divorce ourselves from objective truth or empirical evidence. Apostles had opportunity to touch, see, hear, and even taste. They they ate with the resurrected Christ. The physical, natural world God uses to bolster our faith. And he certainly did it to the apostles then. The birth, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension of Christ are solidly rooted in history and eyewitness testimony. And so we can be confident that our Christian belief is not based on speculation or myth. And the apostles became so absolutely convinced of the resurrection. Now remember, these are the same guys that deserted him at the crucifixion. They were scared to death. They had an uncertain future, at least in their heads. These same men were willing to die. They were tortured. Why? Because they were completely convinced of the veracity, the truthfulness, the facts of the resurrection. And if Jesus were dead without any resurrection, the church would be speechless. In fact, 1 Corinthians 15 says, our faith would be in vain. The facts matter. But listen, a person can have the facts and not have faith, right? 
I mean, it's possible to have a person who believes that Jesus existed. He died, was buried, and I suppose they could even believe that, he's, that he resurrected, but they can refuse to live in dependent faith upon him for the forgiveness of our sins, for their salvation. And so we need more than the facts. We need to express dependent faith upon Christ. And in a day when, when faith is relegated to nothing more than blind preference, Christ stands as the only and sure hope for humankind. This is what gives us our confidence, my dear friends. Our confidence is not in what our stocks do. Our confidence are not in what Britain, how they vote. And Lord knows our confidence is not in the two candidates we presently have before us. We are convinced that Christ is our hope. And we are willing to give our very lives in the pursuit of his pleasure and mission for our lives. I'm not saying we don't work in the political system, that we don't work in the world and try to improve the community we're in. We do, but we do understanding that our ultimate hope is Christ. Listen, it is not popular to speak of any kind of certainty today, especially religious certainty. That is not a popular notion. The cultural police say, you know, with its postmodern ideology, that this is just arrogant. Well, then I guess the Apostle Paul must have been the most arrogant person that has ever been on the face of the earth, because this is what he said in Galatians 1.9, that a person who preaches a different gospel than the one that was delivered to them should be accursed. Not only are you wrong, you should be punished because you're wrong and preaching a different gospel. Yikes. Paul was not afraid of certainty. He was not afraid of conviction. And I suppose as an apostle, he had a right to give such an injunction. I'm not sure we need to go around and start telling people, you're cursed, you're cursed. That's not our job. As an apostle, that was his deal. But here's what we need to hold on to. God holds us accountable to truth. To be certain of what is true, listen, that's a part of being wise. That's a part of wisdom. To deny objective reality, and people do this now with anything, even in the physical world. We can't be sure of anything now, people say. To deny objective reality is the height of human arrogance. To think that we can create our own standard, write the rules, be our own judge. We don't have to stand subject to anything or anyone. And that ties right in with Jesus' teaching of the kingdom of God and what is presented here in verse 3, that Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God refers to the sovereign rule and authority of God in the lives of his people. The kingdom of God is talked about over a hundred times within the parables of Christ. It's referred to over 150 times in the New Testament. And Acts begins and ends with a discussion about the kingdom of God. Listen to the end of Acts in Acts 28, 30, and 31. He being Paul, lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, 
proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Wow. I love that, the simplicity of Paul's boldness. Somebody was telling me the, this morning of hearing one teacher speak and couldn't be sure of the flood, couldn't be sure of creation, casting doubt on all these things. And, you know, I just want to read the word in its simplicity for what it says. Let it speak for itself without hindrance. I love what it says about, you remember what it says about Peter? They're recognizing these men, uneducated fishermen, as having been with Jesus, the apostles. What does that mean? Their boldness, their simplicity, the truth that they gave. I want to be so aligned with the truth of God, with Jesus, that people just say, that guy must have been with Jesus. You know you, how you go to Florida, you have a tan, you think, you know, they must have been to Florida. I want to have a Jesus tan. I want to have a Jesus character, all right, just emanating from me, flowing out. That person must have been with Jesus. And that's what it says about here, about, about Paul. He was just teaching about the Lord, all boldness, without hindrance. Listen, any version of Christianity that leaves out our discipleship objectives, that leaves out the authority of Christ in our lives, that leaves out our kingdom rule, is a version unknown to the biblical record. Humankind would love to talk about love without responsibilities. It loves to refer to passion without rule. It loves to talk about kindness without judgment. But these are man-made constructs that thwart the lordship of Christ, usurp the authority of God, and bastardize Christianity into some messy, muddled soup. It's foolishness. God's desire is to rule in the hearts of his people. And remember that at the Jewish mindset, what were they looking for when he talked about kingdom? They were looking for a military kingdom. They were looking for a physical kingdom. They wanted to be delivered from Rome. Is it much different today? If you look at right-wing Christianity and the way it's presented, we want to change the system. We want a Christian leader. We want all the external trappings of Christianity to be in place, and then we'll win. Let's just twist everybody's arm to comport to what we want. I'm not saying don't be involved, but do you understand that the kingdom of God is not that? Jesus told his followers this. Luke 17, 20 through 21. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, there, behold, for the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, God rules his people with his truth. And it is through them that the kingdom is manifested in the quality of our lives as we live under his rule. Not in taking over all of the social structures today. Nothing wrong with being involved in any community service, any political system. But the kingdom of God is inside each and every believer and is to be lived out 
through relationship. Every time a person places their faith in Christ, listen, they are placed from a kingdom of darkness, that's Satan's domain, into a kingdom of light, God's domain. Listen to what Colossians 1.13 says. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Followers of Christ have a new kingdom, all right, a new king with a new agenda, new directives. God rules in his kingdom, and we serve the king. 1 Peter 2.9 says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The natural result is that the kingdom's priorities, they become our goals. We might say it's, it's God's strategy for our life. The goal of every church, every disciple, is to abide in Christ so that the kingdom of God is manifested in and through us. That means every decision, every penny, every relationship, every job, every vote, every minute falls under his rule. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. So here in verse 4, he states what is referred to in verse 2. Jesus commanded them to wait. And verse 5 tells us what they were waiting for. It was the Holy Spirit who was promised to them by God. Verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Let's talk about these two baptisms for a minute. One is by John with water, and one is with the Holy Spirit. Now, John's baptism is not the same thing that we practice with our water baptism. With our water baptism, we look back to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and find our identity in that with Christ. John's baptism looked ahead. In fact, we see a case in Acts 19 where there was a man that was baptized in John and had to be rebaptized. In Acts 19.4, it says, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus, and was, and was rebaptized. John's baptism looked forward to cleansing. John's baptism was being identified with repentance. And their sin. In fact, that's why Jesus was baptized by John. He said, well, why did John the Baptist baptize Jesus? Because in, in recognizing John's baptism for repentance and sin, Jesus was identifying himself with the sin of the people that he was going to represent on the cross. He was a representative sacrifice. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit was something the apostles understood that was necessary for them to be effective in being witnesses around the world. It would equip them. It would energize them. There are seven references to the baptism of the Holy Spirit in all of Scripture. We see this, for instance, 
in the Gospels where there are five mentions of it and they are prophetic or saying how it was going to you know, come in the future. There's one that is historical in Acts, in Acts 11, and there's one that is doctrinal in 1 Corinthians 12, explaining the meaning of baptism, of being placed in and being identified with the body of Christ. How then do you think the apostles understood this idea of being baptized in the Spirit? Well, it's worth noting that in Jesus' ministry, there is no reference upon, with the Holy Spirit being upon anyone except Jesus. That's an interesting thing to note. The Spirit descended upon him at his baptism in Luke 3. He filled him when he returned from the Jordan in Luke 4, when he led him in and out of the wilderness uh, later on in Luke 4. He rested upon him in his sermon at Nazareth, it says. And then the Spirit is introduced in Acts 1 and 2, and I would suggest that that is not incidental at the beginning of the church. The same Spirit who rested upon Jesus in his ministry would empower the apostles, and I would say us, for our ministry, and in particularly for their witness. Previously, they had experienced the Spirit, listen, they had experienced the Spirit through the very presence of Jesus. And after Pentecost, they would experience Jesus through the presence of the Spirit. They needed to know that the same Jesus who had lived and died and been raised up with them would be the source of power to live an abundant life through them. He had been promised to them, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus promised them that he would never leave, that he would never forsake them. In fact, we see the great commission in Matthew 28 that maybe ought to be better titled the great promise of presence. Listen to what it says in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and behold... I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, if I was an apostle, and I'm not, but if I was, and I listened to that initially, I might think, oh, okay, Jesus is going to stay here with us the whole time. He's never going to leave us. Isn't that going to be great news? And you can imagine when they were in that upper room for part of that 40 days, how they were trying to figure this out. Now, wait a minute. You know, he's going to ascend and he's going to be with us. How's all that going to work? Right? The relationship Jesus had with his followers would look different after Pentecost. He would not only be with them now, but he was going to live in them. The power that they would receive would not be something, but someone, himself, in the person of the Holy Spirit. The eternal word, Jesus, through whom God created the universe, who dwelt among them, And who they had beheld in glory, full of grace and truth, would now be working in and through them through the person of the Holy Spirit. We read in Ephesians 2.22, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you now know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Every Christian 
in this sense, needs to move out of Luke's gospel into the book of Acts. We must identify with Christ as our ascended Lord and allow him to work in and through us in the world. The church is not simply an an organization that ushers in a new ethic. It's not just another kind of religious work. It is a divine organism, the body of Christ on earth, where the Holy Spirit dwells. And living in dependence upon these truths becomes our power, the very definition of our spiritual life. The apostles waited in the upper room for the Holy Spirit. Think about that for a second. Waiting. We're not very good at waiting, are we? We like our Christianity microwaved. Let us wait until we are certain of his presence and power. My friends, we need to heed the example of the apostles here and what God has written for us in Acts. We need to welcome God to show up in our homes, in our marriages, at our work, and yes, at our country. We are to be filled and controlled by the Spirit to operate in the very presence of God being manifested through us. Take time and wait. How many times have we headed, you know, just straight ahead, full bore into something, not stopping, going in the flesh because we wanted something and wanted to find later, man, wish I'd have thought more about that. Wish I'd have prayed about that. Wish I'd have taken some time to wait, to enjoy God's presence. Let us not run off in the day unprepared. Don't carry on with life operating just in the flesh. How many of you as a parent need the power of the Spirit? Yeah, I get that. We raised four of them, three and under. The only way we can fulfill Christ's command and be an effective witness is to be under the control of the Holy Spirit who energizes us. Isaiah 40, 31 says, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. Amidst life's surging activity, we're to allow each day to be a time to receive from God what he has for us, to abide in Christ, to enjoy his presence, to commune, to welcome, to live in his power. You know what? That turns those frustrations of parenting into something where now you're on a mission and it can be joyful. 
those areas of frustration. What are they right now? Could be money. Could be a job. Have you ever thought that the answer is to be filled with the Holy Spirit? The answer is to operate understanding you are in the kingdom of God. You're to live under his rule and his power. Wait for the Lord to renew your strength. Let's pray.